Welcome to Translation Confidential. This is Peter Argandizo and Patrick Daly. And today we are going to talk about seven things you should absolutely never do in an RFI or an RFP. Um, we've covered some of these, but there's some new new points here. Um, and we're specifically going to talk about um, not only what you shouldn't do for each of these points, but maybe what a better option is. Because I think we understand what the goal is from the buyer's perspective. So we're going to try to give you an option of what might be a better way of accomplishing what you're trying to do. But let's get things rolling. A uh, little new story from New York. Um, and it's about New York expanding its services for limited English proficiency residents, which I think is very cool. And New York State Governor Kathy Hochul announced on October 3rd that the Office of Language Access is now open for business. The agency will provide oversight and guidance for state executive agencies in applying legislation and policy related to residents of limited English proficiency. New York State already had a language access policy. It was put in place through an executive order in 2011 by, uh, by then-Governor Andrew Cuomo. At the time, government agencies were required to translate documents into six commonly spoken languages. In 2021, the number of languages increased to 10. And uh, what's special about this um, initiative is there's a new allocation of uh, $2 million U.S. million uh, for the Office of Language Access to be part of the state's fiscal year 2023 enacted budget. Uh, It makes good on a commitment made by the governor earlier in 2022 to improve and expand language access. So the law took effect in July and requires all agencies in charge of state programs to provide interpretation services in any language and translation of vital agency documents into now 12 commonly spoken languages. So you see that number keeps expanding. And curiously, um, the 12 languages Uh, are Arabic, Bengali, Chinese, French, Haitian Creole, Italian, Korean, Polish, Russian, Spanish, Urdu, and Yiddish. And each agency will also have the ability to expand services into up to four additional languages based on local needs, which is smart because I'm sure it probably varies uh, in different parts of the state, just like it does in Illinois or Wisconsin or any of our own regions. So kind of cool to see that. Patrick. Yeah, it's um, it's cool to see that they have the budget for that because um, I know it's definitely helpful, um, especially coming from government agencies to have their content translated into different languages. I know from the unfortunate experience of having to go to the Chicago Police Department a few times after a couple fender benders, um, usually you'll see when you walk in, there's like eight or nine signs up in different languages of you know, like how to file a police report, you know, what information they need and. Like you said, it's cool because it's local to Chicago, so obviously there's English, Polish, Spanish, Korean, Arabic are the, the kind of the top five I see often whenever I'm around. Um, but yeah, it's really cool that um, New York has an office specifically dedicated to language access. I'm wondering if we should do a show, Patrick, specifically on why you spend so much time in a police station. It's people hitting me, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> nah, it's very cool, Patrick. That's uh, and I, I know that actually used to be one of your clients when you were here too. We've done work for Chicago PD, so um, so that's great. Thanks for sharing that. Um, yeah, for sure. It, 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 I think you know, in a prior administration, I think there was sort of a de-escalation or deprioritization, if you will, on the importance of languages, and I'm glad to see that across the board. Um. 
languages are coming to the forefront again. Uh, I, I get the idea that sometimes politically people think, well, we're making it easy on immigrants, but uh, by providing all these language services uh, as the son of immigrants, I would tell you that um, the path forward or to get people indoctrinated into our culture is to help them get there. So um, I don't really think it's a political question. I think it's more of a pragmatic question and how do we help people be at home and, and uh, get integrated into our system. And I think uh, by providing that bridge through language services makes a lot of sense. So let's get rolling. Let's get rolling, Patrick. We've got seven important topics to talk about. And I wanted to get started with the big one, which is include, uh, you know, don't include pricing models that are weird. <laughs> they don't match the industry. Uh you know, we recently did an RFI, and I'm, I'm not going to mention the name. Um, it's for a, a large corporation, uh, top ten in the world. <laughs> uh, so, you know, tiny little company. And what they were looking for was four different pricing models. One was a straight pricing model, which is, hey, what's your price per word by language? Very industry standard. The other three were very strange. Uh, the second one was... Give me a flat, flat price per language, and I think we talked a little bit about it in the uh, in our previous show because I had referred to it. Was you know kind of I was getting on my soapbox, Patrick. <laughs> I think I was a little tweaked about it, and I still am, but um, only for the matter that I don't think you get your intended results. So that there was that one. So give me a fixed price per language, which is really weird when we talk about Spanish as compared to Japanese or Marshallese, and you know somebody's going to lose. So if you set a per word price and then the buyer only buys Spanish. Now you've essentially overcharged them. Or if the buyer buys only Japanese, now you've undercharged them. So somebody's losing, whether it's the agency or the the client. And the other two models, which were a fixed retainer price. So in other words, um, give me a price, uh, a flat price, say a million dollars, and we'll buy as much translation as we need for the year, even if it's three million. Also very strange. Um, and the fourth model was kind of a hybrid approach, also still a retainer model, but again, someone was going to win or lose. And, and I, think, I think those are failed. I mean, I, I just, I really do. I think any time that somebody's going to lose, whether it's the supplier or the buyer, I just don't think it's healthy. Yeah, I'm thinking um, specifically on that third one you mentioned of just like a flat price for the cost for the year that kind of sticks out to me as the the strangest one of the bunch because like you said it's dependent on volume of work right so let's just say for the sake of the discussion the price is a million dollars and they send you 50 grand worth of translation i mean that's a great win for you but a terrible loss for them so i think maybe something more along the lines of like an open po that you draw down against and say hey we're just gonna you know, provide that bucket of a million, we're going to pull down from that throughout the year and then kind of go from there where it's not just like, what's your cost? I think that's a very simple solution that especially some of these larger corporations are very familiar with of just having an open PO and billing down against it. That's that's not uncommon. Absolutely. Very standard in terms of any type of consulting agreement, whether you're purchasing IT consulting, marketing consulting, consulting PR consulting, uh, you know, the retainer model is not odd. It's fine, but it just can't be 
fixed. And because and, I, I mean, also, you, I think you have to think if like you're a procurement person, right? You have to think to yourself, well, what happens if we hit that million dollar mark in June? What kind of service is that company going to provide from June until December? I mean, are they going to use machine translation because now it's on their buck? And, you know, what sort of damage are we going to do to either our customers or our internal people that we're providing these language services for? Because now the LSP is in a position where they've already exhausted their budget and, and it's on their dime. I mean, imagine what they're going to provide. I, I mean, I, I, I don't, for me... If I were in procurement, that would scare the hell out of me. Yeah, I mean, and that can screw up your budget, too, because what happens, like you say, if you spend it all by June and the provider's like, yeah, we're done, unless you sign on for more money. Right, which, you know, you'd have to look at sort of what they signed in terms of the agreement or the SOW, but again, you know, I mean, who would sign on for something like that? I don't know. Who would commit to have an open ticket uh, (laughs) where you could basically – Purchase as much services as you want. I, I mean, I just I've never heard of that. That's why I've actually never heard failed of it. the first time. Yes, exactly. Exactly. There's been plenty of business models. Um, so yeah, that that wouldn't work that way. So anyway, um, and I think the next one kind of dovetails into it, and then I think we're going to give a suggestion. So you know, only you know, I think for example, only ask for per word pricing is actually a, a failure as well because there's so much nuance to translation, right? So very often you'll hear people, whether it's just an RFI or they get a little education and they come around and they say, hey, I, I need some Spanish. I just kind of need your per word price. And I think per unit pricing, I, I mean, where where does that, like, could you call your attorney and say, hey, I, I just, I just got to get your hourly fee. Like how valuable would that information be when if you're trying to engage them to do, say, a merger and acquisition or if it's personal to establish a, a trust for you or a will, I mean, you have no, many, you do have no idea how many hours they're going to charge you. How do you compare apples to apples there? You go to one attorney and he says, well, it's, I'm 150 an hour. Another attorney says he's 195 an hour, but only to find out that the, the attorney that charges 195 can complete your will in 20 hours where the other guy who's at 150 is going to take 40 hours. Mm-hmm. Well, you haven't established anything. You have a per unit price with no tether to it. You don't know how will they do the analysis and how many repetitions will they come up with? What will they discount? There's so much nuance to translation pricing, including all those sub items, the memory matches, the discounts uh, related to uh, repetitions and fuzzy matches. And will there be any charges for desktop publishing? Will there be any project management fees? There's so much nuance. So... I mean, I don't know, Patrick. It's, um, that one's tough for me. Yeah, I mean, it, per word pricing, I think, is a good start, um, and it's a good jumping off point, but it shouldn't be the end-all, be-all. Um, you really need to know the net cost because, like you said, there can be volume discounts if you translate X amount of words per year. You know, we'll bump a percentage off the top. Um, there's all sorts of considerations that come into play, whereas just asking for that per word pricing it can give you a decent look into your total price, but I mean, you could be off by 30% higher or lower. And if you, you don't want to be off by that much, you want to have a very slim margin for error in terms of if you're trying to forecast pricing. Right. And, and I think there's a better way to do it, right? We promised that we'd give people a better way to do it. And I think a good way that we've seen and where people have listened to us and provided suggestions is, 
hey, why don't you include a sample of documents or projects that you're you know, going to plan to do? So if you were a um, company that does, uh, you're looking at marketing and HR-related materials, corporate communications, why don't you get a couple press releases uh, for marketing, a couple spec sheets, uh, maybe a couple web pages, uh, a couple blog posts. Uh, maybe you're doing Google ads, so you, you know, want to do some ads that you want translated. Um, uh, a manual and instruction instructions for use. You know, whatever it is that your program, your company uses. You know, gather those requirements. Gather up some samples. Get a bucket of 15, 20 documents, whatever it is, and say, "Hey, I, I'd like pricing in my ten key languages here on these documents, and I want them itemized." All right. Hey, now we're talking. I mean, now you've got a real basis. Oh, and by the way, give me a live quote for it. I want to see what quotes are going to look like. So, you know, what are you checking off, right? You're checking off, hey, I want to see what their pricing is on the project. I want to see what any additional costs are, whether it's project management or otherwise. Um, I want to see how quickly they quote. I want to see, um, you know, how they spec their timelines. I want to see how they do their statement of work for each project. I mean, you're checking off a lot of boxes just with that one item. I would say another big one is I want to see if they ask any questions when we send over this big pile of documents um, because they should mm-hmm. be analyzing and reviewing the source files to see if there's anything that jumps out. Um, I know um, embedded images were always a thing. We have to figure out how we're going to deal with those and plan for those in the workflow. So I would even say throw in a few uh, I don't want to say traps, but throw in all things that should signal a flag and be like, hey, what are we going to do? How are we going to tackle this issue that's that's in this set of documents? Um, and if I were a buyer, too, I would say, I think you kind of alluded to it, too, but what does this cost if I do these all at the same time? And then what does it cost if I want to chip off and just do one press release at a time or one one spec sheet at a time? That will give you a sense of minimum pricing as well, in addition to your volume and per word pricing. Yeah, I like that, Patrick. That makes a lot of sense. See, and I think that gets you to your goal, right? So this is this is our goal today is we're going to give you these seven do not do's, but then we're hoping to give you a strategy that will help you get the information you want. And this next one actually makes my brain hurt. Um, do not ask for profitability and revenue figures. We we actually had one that asked for our income statement. You know, we're a privately held corporation. I'm not going to give you my income statement. It's just not going to happen. Um, if that's a requirement, we're out. I understand what you're looking for there. You're probably saying, hey, does this firm have any financial strength? Um, will they be around next year? Um do they have the wherewithal to handle the amount of work we're going to give them? So, you know, the counter side of that is why don't you instead ask for, hey, can you give me a list of your top five clients um, and approximately how much revenue they give you? Even that's a little bit invasive, but it's not as invasive, right? And now you're saying, all right, well, look, I want to see what types of companies do they work with? And hey, if I'm going to do a million dollars of spend, can they handle a million dollars in spend? So I want to see who is their top customer. Um, I think it gets you to the same place. You know, ask number of years in business. How about references? Like, hey, who do you work with that looks like me? Mm-hmm. 
You know, I'm, I'm looking for corporate communications. That's going to be the, the gist of the work I'm doing. Can you give me some corporate communications clients you have? I actually want to have a conversation with them. I'm going to ask them some questions about how you meet deadlines and what you do. That seems like it makes more sense to me than just having to look at some financials. I, I, I don't think that makes any sense. Yeah, I think um, a way around that, too, is maybe providing broad ranges and asking someone who's filling out an RFP to you know pick which range they fall in without having to give well, any, fair any specifics. So you can say, you know, is your revenue 1 to 10, 11 to 30? You can make up whatever ranges you want. Because um, I think especially in translation... Um, at least if memory serves correctly, there's a couple, maybe three to five massive players in the translation industry that have crazy high revenue numbers. And then a lot of them are, a lot of translation providers are, you know, more regional, small, medium business size where they're not these, these titans with giant public traded companies. And they're still able to provide very, very good service and support. It's just, I don't think there's really a, a big market in the middle in between those. You have the small medium business, then you have these gigantic players who get huge by buying regional companies up left and right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think just kind of that shows an understanding of the industry that there's really, and I don't want to say a huge gap between like the Titans in terms of like company size, but there is kind of a gulf in the middle, at least from what I can recall in terms of the size of companies. Absolutely. That's a good point, Patrick. And and I think, you know, that that alternate strategy, you know, will get you what you need without asking the super, super invasive questions that are going to get you a not applicable or, you know, just a no Mm -hmm. answer to. And then you don't then you don't get the information you need between that's really the one and 100 million. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Somewhere above one million, but below one billion. (laughs) Yes, exactly. That'd be the world's largest range. Um, the other one that sort of bugs me that we've seen is, hey, how many offices do you have in the world? And you have to understand, half of what you're going to get back is BS. And there was this, you know, Patrick talked about all the companies that, you know, went on a buying spree and bought all regional buyers and regional companies. You know, they rolled up regional LSPs kind of like our size. And then they sort of gut the staff that they don't need and keep those that they do. And there's, you know, no office or maybe there is an office, but maybe it's just one person in a Regis or a, a flexible space office. And my point is, is what strategic strength does that provide a client to know that there's a project manager in some remote area of the world when you're sitting here in Chicago anyway. I mean, quite frankly, you know, even thinking about, like, someone has to lead a project, right? And if someone tells you, hey, well, what happens is when the lights go off in Chicago, the lights turn on in Japan. And so you think that they, like, transfer your project at night, like, with all your project notes and, you know, are your projects that simple, and uncomplicated that you can just flip a switch and the project was being led by someone here in the States or in Europe or wherever, and then at night it just magically moves to another spot. I mean, you have to think, you have to go a little bit deeper and think about how translation projects work. You know, a project manager will assign the translation tasks to its 
a group of translators who, of course, a lot of them are in country or not in Chicago. So essentially your project becomes a global project almost immediately because the translators are spread out across the world. So even though they don't have a shingle in Rome, well, there's translators doing the work in Rome or in Japan or China. So what advantage does it give you? In fact, I think I might argue that it might be a disadvantage because now you're providing additional overhead. I mean, it's not that an agency who only has one location doesn't have international expertise or has the ability that if you ask a cultural question or one that requires some nuance on the ground, they can't just pick up the phone and call their translator in country and say, hey, I need to have a discussion about the nuance of this project. That's just me. Yeah, I think um, that that can geography can matter to a point. <clears throat> I think you would want and or need a provider who's on a similar time zone to you or is at least available during certain hours of your time zone. I'm thinking the one I would run into most often is, you know, between Europe and the States, there's obviously the, depending on where you are, five, six, seven hour difference. Um, so I think another good way to get around that is you can ask what their working hours are, um, what team mm-hmm. members may be located um, outside of uh, their, their headquarter market. I know, um, I mean, remote work isn't really going anywhere, and, and um, especially project management has seen a big increase in, you know, not having employees necessarily in office. So like we've been saying, there's ways to get the info you're looking for without asking questions in a certain way. And if you kind of think about that critical info that you are looking for, I think, like we said, asking what... Um, what support is available outside of business hours? What are the business hours? What does rush service look like? Things like that will give you an indication of kind of what the global reach might be of a provider. Spot on. That's perfect, Patrick. Yep, those are all the options that will get you the information you need versus just making a bunch of assumptions based on some addresses in foreign countries. So that's that's really good. Um, the next please don't do is tell your prospective firms that you're looking to interview that quality matters and it's the only thing that matters when in reality you're really a procurement person and all you really care about is price. I get that there might be some strategic initiatives and saying, hey, everything's important. We're looking at everything. But I actually think this is where an ounce of honesty is going to better suit you. I would actually, if you, if price is your only play, well, that's what I would look at. I would look at agencies that, hey, it's just speed and price. They're just, that's where they focus. They use alternative solutions like machine translation and post editing. Like that's the only thing they use. You know, they've got that super optimized. Go look at those companies. Like if price is your only thing, then hey, make it your only thing. Focus on it. But if you tell folks that quality is your number one initiative, but then make your decision set only on price, and we've had that happen, where procurement tells us, hey, quality is our number one thing. Oh, sure, price is certainly a factor. But then when it comes down to it, and you get the post information like, hey, how did we do? You guys were great. You were middle of the pack, but we went with the lowest price bidder. 
That's a waste of time. I think it's a waste of your time as a buyer, and it's a waste of the agency's time as a supplier. And, I mean, it leaves the supplier with a sour taste in their mouth, and really they might um, not want to work with you if they come back after the RFP, and they're like, oh, my gosh, our provider we picked based on price is awful. Can we you know, re-engage with you? They might be like, mm-hmm. remember all that time we just wasted filling out these dozens of pages of documentation and three rounds of meetings with your executive team all to just be, oh, sorry, it was just price. That's all we cared about, where they were kind of strung along. Um, I think that that can that can definitely lead to a sour taste and maybe someone you know, politely refusing to work with that company moving forward. Yeah. I mean, it's not a great look. And I think, I think an ounce of honesty would go a long way. Uh, when you do those initiatives. So, you know, I would say if asked or even in clearly in the uh, introductory paragraph that always is part of an RFI, like here's our goal. You know, we're going to spend a lot of money on translation next year. We need to do it in the best possible way. I mean, in that way, I think you're going to get better answers in the RFP too because then people are going to focus on like, well, all right, how can we be as efficient as possible for this client? Mm -hmm. Price is their main goal. How can we do this? Yeah, I think you're going to get better results. Yeah, to that point, I think the if the provider knows that up front, they can go in with that mindset of it's all about cost optimization as the number one priority. Um, and even they can still have high quality if it's just you know batching or or having multiple translators on the account as opposed to just a lead and you know a small team of maybe three or four. You have ten or twelve just to you know get it moving faster. Um, so there's all sorts of strategy that can go in if you're like, this price is all that matters and we need it fast. Absolutely. And I think along those same lines, um, don't invite agencies who you flat out know don't fit your requirements. Um, you know, much like in marketing when we look and say, hey, who is who is our ideal customer? Our, our ideal customer is this size and they need these things and, you know, we define that out. Well, if you're sitting down and you're doing this translation RFI, sit down with your stakeholders and ask, hey, what's important to you? Is it important that they have a global reach with offices all over the world? Well, if so, why is that important? Is it important that, um, you know, they've been in business a while? Is it important that they use translation memory technology? Is it important... um, that they've done a lot of work for ad agencies like us, PR agencies like us, uh, multinational organizations like us, whatever it is. Put those bullet points in and say, all right, well, now when we invite six companies to do this, we're going to make sure they fit this. And by the way, if we can't determine that they fit these bullets, we're going to ask, hey, our ideal provider fits these these six bullet points. Can you answer yes to these? Does this does this look like you? Because that's who our perfect are. This who our perfect organization is. I think that'll go a long way. And I think you can also learn a lot from that too. Like, let's say one of your questions is, "Do you have multiple offices around the world?" I think a savvy um, answer for someone who may not have offices around the world would be no, but, and then all of those points we just brought up uh, a couple bullet points mm-hmm. ago of you know. We've got project managers all over the world. Our translators are, you know, X percent in country. So they're working, you know, when the lights turn off in Chicago, they're still working um, in their mm-hmm. market. So I think that can also be 
a good educational moment for anyone preparing an RFI of, you know, you, I think what you mentioned of, you know, having those bullet points is a good start, but it can also kind of maybe uh, lead to some education on, on the buyer side and say, make them think critically, do we really need X requirement that we're asking for? I like that, Patrick. Yeah. I mean, and you make a great point because, you know, even the smallest agency has global reach. Um, just by virtue of the business we do, right? I mean, if you have a 10-language job and there's Asian languages involved, well, when the lights go out in Chicago, you know the translators are working overnight in Asia. And that's just how it is. So, um, yeah, that actually was a great point, uh, one that we didn't bring up, that the size of the agency doesn't necessarily matter in, t- in terms of their global reach. Um, you know, a better question might be how do you vet your translators and how do you add them? You have these folks that work remotely all across the globe. What does your quality program look like and how you add vendors, right? I mean, we could do this all day, but um, yeah, absolutely. And our number seven, please don't do this darn it all, is don't use a reverse Dutch auction. Uh, if you do, you're going to get exactly what you bargained for. Um, those of you who don't know who, what a reverse Dutch auction, auction is, think of eBay backwards, right? So in other words, you start with, okay, we put in you know, this number, this, you know, 26 cents a word across all the languages. Now everybody bid backwards. So like I'm, I'm interested in doing 24, so I put in 24. Then the next one puts in 23. And the most horrific example I can think of is one that we did for a very large corporation where they had six agencies that they were truly interested in working in, but they invited 30 to bid in the reverse Dutch auction which I think actually um, is probably one of the most unethical things that we've ever participated in. Because what they, you know, the agencies that knew they weren't, I mean, there was an open line. And on the open line, they were saying, hey, well, we're not going to get the work anyway. We're not even part of the six that were invited to answer questions. Let's just bid the price down. I mean, how terrible is that? Yeah, that's just harming the industry at that point. (laughs) Yeah. And again, much like the example we talked about earlier, when you run out of retainer, you know, what, what kind of service do you think you're going to get? Well, if, you're, if you've done a reverse Dutch auction and the pricing is 40% below the industry, like what do you think you're going to get? I mean, remember translation is a human service. It can be analogous to manufacturing in the sense like if you buy widgets and, you know, there's, there's usually a dollar a piece, but then you – Bid it out, it's 40 a piece, 40 cents a piece. Like, what do you think? Is the plastic going to be the same level quality that you were going to get at the dollar one? Kind of doubt it. Is the QA process going to be the same? Doubt it. I mean, a company will go out of business if they try to provide you the dollar, the service they provide at the dollar widget at 40 cents, right? So what do you think in a service, whether it's marketing services, translation services, if you bid the price down by 40%, what shortcuts are they going to take? Is it just going to be machine translation, no humans, no editing? What QA steps are they going to cut out? Something's got to give. Right? Yeah, I think it, it comes back to the age-old saying for me of you get what you pay for. Um, I think that you should be cautious of very high price and very low price. I think somewhere in the middle is a sweet spot. So um, I think having ranges is always a good idea um, and not just getting fixed on, oh, it's going to be, you know, 25 cents a word. Whereas, like we mentioned, different languages matter, different discounts come into play. I think it's really important to, 
like we kind of outlined um, in one of the earlier steps is do like a, a dummy or a sample project and kind of get a sense for how things are going to work. And you should see that net price. I mean, the gross price is what it is, but I think the net is what you're really concerned with. 100%, Patrick. Well, with that, what is your biggest takeaway from today's episode, Patrick? Yeah, I would... Besides that, our Argon is a little crazy <laughs> today. Um, I think that um, RFP and RFI processes are always hard on the buying side, but I think being closed off to any um, constructive criticisms or kind of having providers turn questions back to you as a buyer, I think that shows a certain level of savvy. And um, I think as the buyer, you should be open to that and not just completely dismiss someone if they say no, but to some of the questions that you have. Yeah, I would agree, Patrick. For me, it's kind of a more of a, uh, um, you know, kind of a global perspective on all of it, too. I just know like one single thing, but I think aligning the questions to exactly the end goals that you're trying to get to make a lot of sense. It seems like it's the, the, the best possible way forward. Um, and, um, you know, I think just, you know, being smart uh, about setting up the goals of the initiative Um listening, maybe trying to ask some questions. Like some of the best RFPs I've been involved in, I've had conversations with the buyers. And I know they're having conversations with others. They're asking questions. They're learning. They're probing to set up their questions to get the most they possibly can out of the initiative. Right. And we've seen, too, that um, in certain instances, you know, you talk to one provider and then that sparks a question for the buyer to ask the next one Mm -hmm. because they have some level of comparison there to be like, well, this person answered this way. Now I want to see what, what this company does with the same situation. Absolutely. Absolutely. You don't have to believe everything that one vendor tells you. Just have conversations and then set up your questions. It makes a lot of sense. Well, for this episode of Translation Confidential, this is Peter and Patrick signing off. Until next time, bye-bye.